Wild Precious Life is brought to you in part by Broadway Books, a locally owned independent bookstore that's been happily supplying books to readers in Northeast Portland, Oregon, and beyond since 1992. Broadway Books hosts dynamic events that feature both established and emerging writers. We support neighborhood schools and literary organizations and hire people who are knowledgeable and passionate about what we sell in order to keep our stock fresh and eclectic. Find your next great read or shop online at broadwaybooks.net. And we're brought to you by the Ashland University Low Res MFA, where our accomplished faculty help you find your voice and complete your degree at your own pace. Learn more and enroll today at ashland.edu. My kids recently came across a family tree I made in the third grade. There, on a faded piece of notebook paper, etched in pencil, were the halting names of our ancestors, the Scarpettis, Silvestris, and Flaherty's, the dead who went before us, ghosts and memories of people my children had never known, beside my own name, on a magic markered tree. And just like that, I was transported back to this day in my grandparents' house on Jesse Avenue, when I was made to interview my grandpa Orland about his family. I didn't like my Italian grandpa very much. My Irish grandpa Kel was fun. A talker who could usually be counted on for a bit of candy while he regaled us with stories of flying airplanes across the country in World War II. By contrast, grandpa Orland was sullen. He worked nights at the city bus depot and slept during the day. On the occasion of that school assignment, he was about as eager to be seated there with me as I was to be sitting with him. But he told me about our coal miner cousins in Oklahoma and didn't correct me when I spelled his mother's name, Conchetta, with two N's, two A's, and two T's. When Grandpa Orland died of suicide a few years later, I would often come back to that afternoon. Why hadn't I been nicer to him? If I had said something different or tried harder to make a connection, could I have saved him? These were the natural musings of a 12-year-old girl who didn't know about mental illness or the way a single afternoon spent in the company of a child you barely know is no antidote to a lifetime battle with depression. For years, though, I wondered. I even blamed myself for not realizing his gruffness masked sadness and pain. Today's guest has written about love and trauma and what is left behind in our hearts by family who came before us, both those we've known and ancestors whose DNA we share. What will be our legacy, not just for our children if we have them, but for generations, for our country, for this earth? And she manages to put all of these big ideas into poems. So let me tell you about Teresa. Teresa K. Miller's poetry collection, Borderline Fortune, won the prestigious National Poetry Series and has been featured on radio programs and book festivals across the country. A graduate of the Mills College MFA program, Teresa has published poems and essays in Lit Hub, Common Dreams, Ziziva, and elsewhere. Originally from Seattle, she tends a mini orchard near Portland, Oregon. Teresa K. Miller, welcome to Wild Precious Life. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, We're really glad to have you here to talk about your recent poetry book, 
borderline fortune, and also perhaps to talk about inheritance, what we leave behind, what we seek, and when it comes to our interconnectedness on this planet, what responsibilities we have to one another. However, before we get to all those giant questions, <laughs> I wonder if you can just answer our traditional opening question, which just asks writers and um, creative folks to tell us what they're about and tell us their story. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's a big question, right? There are a lot of ways to, to tell a story, but um, I was born and raised in West Seattle. I'm the fourth generation on my mom's side uh, to grow up in West Seattle, which is a little rare. Um, and I got interested in poetry, I think, before conscious memory. My mom read me poetry when she was pregnant with me, and so it sort of was just in the air already by the time my, my memories came online. Um, I think the first poem I wrote was at daycare when I was four um, in crayon just because I was bored and <laughs> it seemed like the thing to do. Um, and then I went to this really cool alternative school that my best friend's mom ran where we had science for like half an hour once a week, but we wrote every single day. <laughs> so <laughs> I just thought that's what you do. And um, it's been, you know, my passion all along. But I had the good fortune while I was at Barnard to work with Saskia Hamilton, who um, is still a professor there and now I think a vice provost through a grant program at Barnard called the Centennial Scholars Program. So I got to work with her one-on-one -on -one, semester after semester and put together a portfolio and she ended up helping me apply to MFA programs. And so then that's when I kind of got into the more um, professionalization of poetry, if there is such a thing in earnest. Uh, and then out of grad school, I published a chapbook with a small press called Tarpaulin Sky. And after that, I published a full-length book called Sped with a small press called Side Sidebrow that's based now between San Francisco and Portland. And then after what felt like this very long wander in the wilderness, you know, where I basically had decided I wasn't going to write anymore, um, I kind of turned out this manuscript for myself. And I thought, okay, this is just going to be a word file. Finished it the weekend that the National Poetry Series contest closed, which is sort of like filing your taxes. If you're a poet, you just, if you have something, you send it in um, and don't expect anything out of it. Uh, and so about six days after I had decided that I wasn't going to write anymore, probably because it was too painful and it wasn't going anywhere, I got an email saying that I was a finalist, which had happened before. And I thought, okay, well, that's a nice sign from the universe. Maybe I'll keep going. And then the day after my birthday, um, you know, while we were still like fully pre-vaccine COVID land, I uh, got a call from the former Poet Laureate of California saying that I had won the National Poetry Series with Borderline Fortune. So that was sort of the journey to get to get to this particular conversation. So even though you had written a book, you still felt like, I'm not going to do this anymore. What was the distance between um, SPED and Borderline Fortune? So SPED came out in 2013, and I had been shopping various versions of it for about five years before it came out. Um, and I had written another book pretty quickly after that. I decided, you know, just trying to apply, I guess, my my science brain or my, you know, practical brain to it. Like, I need to have another book within two years. And like, that's the plan. And, you know, I'm going to have this book and I'm going to publish it. And I did write a book about a year and a half afterwards. And I still 
think that it's good and I hope it goes somewhere someday. And it kept being a finalist, you know, the always a bridesmaid, never a bride kind of situation. And so it kept, it got good feedback, you know, this is so great, but, and I kind of felt like I had played out all the possibilities for it. So by the time I wrote Borderline Fortune, like I said, it was sort of for myself. I thought I was just kind of talking to myself and I felt like I was getting into some more dangerous territory with, you know, just things around my family and and looking at, you know, my relationship to kind of the intangible metaphysical inheritance that I had had from them. And there's a lot of um, resistance in general to speaking ill of the dead, but I think particularly in my family, that's a taboo. And so I thought I'm just writing this thing for myself and it's not going to go anywhere and I've gotten it out. And if it's not going to go anywhere, then, you know, what's the point? Uh, so it was in 2020 when I finished it up and sent it out. And then okay, first in- off, no one finished anything in 2020. So <laughs> what, what is your magic? Because in 2020, zero people finished anything. Well, the thing, of, <laughs> the thing about this book is that it's precisely pre-pandemic because it was literally March 14th when <gasps> I realized, oh, this is real. And it was this very strange situation where I went to my gym and I didn't realize it was going to be the last time I went because some people were saying this is nothing and some people were saying this is terrible, but we were still in that place where it was like, maybe people are overreacting. And I went to my gym and I just realized, you know, and I'm like, I've been certified as a personal trainer since college. So like my gym was like a thing. It was part of my routine. And I got there and realized I was so paranoid. And I just felt this sense of wanting to get away from everyone around me. And I walked outside and I thought, I'm never going there again, at least as long as this is going on. And even though it was mid-March, it had started to snow. So it was this very, which is not really a thing in Oregon in March. And so it was just this strange, surreal situation where I'm not going here anymore. I feel like life is about to change for us. I have this intense sense of foreboding. Now it's snowing. My car like skidded into our driveway when I got home. And I said to my partner, you know, I don't think we're going out <laughs> again <laughs> for a while. And that evening and, and the next morning, I thought, well, I'm just going to finish up this thing that I've been working on. And I sent it on the 15th, which was the due date. Um, and it was just kind of this missive. And so, yeah, by the time it got picked up, I mean, the world was completely different. It was this this time capsule. That's amazing. It's it's part apocalyptical and also part like signs from the heavens, even the weather. Here's this thing. You've always been this gym trainer person girl and and you're not going to be that for a while and here's this weather that never happens and it is and here's this pandemic coming and right before i don't know it's like raiders of the lost ark where he reaches back for his hat and the gate is closing i don't know like right before it all closed <laughs> out you punt this manuscript into the world a, a maneuver you're telling me you did did before so borderline fortune for folks who don't know won the national poetry series. This is a big deal. But you're saying you had tried for this before? Yes. So what did I figure out? It was eight times over 14 years I submitted. Uh, eight books? No. Or this one? Four or variations. Diff- all, yeah. Four different books. So this is the thing. Yeah. There are different, like I said, there are different ways to tell a story, right? So one way I could tell the borderline fortune story is very Instagram worthy and super obnoxious, which is I wrote this book in 10 months and I finished it up the day it was due and I submitted it to the National Poetry Series. It's the first place I submitted it and it won. Like, who knows? I'm just that awesome, you know? But it's like, 
that's not really the story. The story is I started submitting other books to the National Poetry Series right out of grad school and or I think even my last year in grad school. So over a period of 14 years, I submitted four different books for a total of eight times. Three of them were finalists, including this one. Sped was a finalist, but went on to be published by Sidebrow. Um, So it was just rejection, 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 close but not quite, rejection, rejection, close but not quite. So like I said, it was a nudge from the universe, like, no, keep going when I got that finalist notice. But I also thought, this has happened before, and it didn't lead to publication. So yeah, it it felt like, I've said it felt like winning the lottery at the end of an ultra marathon. (laughs) Like the end, the (laughs) ultra marathon is you have to have the goods, right? You have to have a book that's worth publishing. But then the last step, it's really a lottery. It's, is your book the right one that year for the anonymous judge who you don't know, who doesn't know you because it's all anonymously judged? Do the stars align? And this time they did. So. Wow. Well, I'm all about holding multiple stories. So I think both the Instagram and the long form journalistic interpretation of the story, I think they can both simultaneously exist. And depending <laughs> on the audience, you break one out or, or the other. Um, but I have to sit with this idea that you can do everything right. You can, and I have that in quotation marks, you can write every day in preschool. You can study with a master you can have a great portfolio and you can, like you said, you can have the goods, uh, but it still might not work out right away. For some people, probably not at all, but I'm going to say maybe just not right away. You might not be able to live off of your art. I know that to be true for many, many creative folks. And that's a difficult truth to hold, you know, because I want to, I want to, um, I want to believe that the merit of the thing, but you're right, fit. Does what you've written fit that moment? My goodness, they were reading. I can picture, I can picture those judges reading your pages with the, the, the crash of the pandemic just, just on top of them. And they're looking for something in your words. They're looking for a raft to hold on to while they're being thrown about. But they're also looking for acknowledgement that we are all in this thing being thrown about. And so you your book does capture both of those both of those things. Well, I'm glad for you and I love the idea that this was a multiple I mean it probably wasn't great for you to have to live inside of that um to be writing 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 and not feeling like it's going anywhere. I I mean we've all had as a writerly person that doubt where you write a sentence you thought was good then you look at it in the morning and you delete it or you scratch it out or you set it on fire. <laughs> Um, but out of the ashes is the phoenix of something, something new. So what do you do with this recognition then? Is it, is it, is it fuel for your fire? Are you writing seven more books or is it, (laughs) is it like, oh my gosh, now what? Like, is the reward for the art well done enough? It's all of the above and it's something different as well. Um, what you're saying about, trying and trying and trying and not necessarily getting there when you want to, or maybe ever, I think is very true. And one of the things that I've learned from this experience is like, this was this was the thing, this was the thing that I wanted. This was the thing that I was trying for for 14 years. This, even when I was a baby poet starting grad school, this, this was the brass ring, right? And I got it. 
And that's amazing. And I feel very, very fortunate. I don't take it for granted. And it's so interesting to be on the other side of that kind of a goal and to realize it's not really about the goal. It's about the process. And so that's why I come back to that idea. I'm not just saying, you know, what I think I'm supposed to say or some platitude when I say I would really like to just always be 75% of the way through a manuscript because that's the good stuff. That really is the good stuff. This, this award is lovely. It has launched a lot of poets' careers. May it launch mine in, into a bigger sphere. You know, that would be wonderful. And it's not poetry itself. You know, you, you win this and then you get a contract from a publishing company, which is, you know, so many writers' dreams, but you're you're like, oh, it's, you know, this is a, it's kind of a business deal and you negotiate your contract and, and you you do the things you're supposed to do and you take it through copy editing and, and none of that is the poetry itself. And it's lovely and it's a vehicle to get the poetry out there, but none of that is the state of flow. None of that is this, you know, really spiritual, um, you know, just kind of earth transcending practice of actually being in that moment of creation. And so as grateful as I am, it's just also been super interesting to adjust my perspective to get to the other side and say, oh, you know, this goal was just a, just a thing. <laughs> and, and the important part is the writing and to keep being engaged with the writing. I mean, literally, I had made and I wrote an essay about this in LitHub. Um, I had made this very strange perfectionist bargain with myself from a pretty early age where I didn't know if I wanted kids. And I thought, well, if I won an award, if I won this award or I won an award like this, then that would be good enough and I wouldn't need to have kids, which just now is bonkers <laughs> on the other side of winning this award because I'm like, this is just a, this is an arbitrary thing that people made up and it's cool and it creates this interesting community and it gets your work out there. It has absolutely nothing to do with whether you're called to have children. Um, and so just sort of realizing like even the act of getting published, published, if that's your main goal and you're chasing it, yeah, nobody can guarantee that you're ever going to get published. And it's it's really arbitrary and it's external. And so this process has just taught me like, how do I go back inside and and stay involved with the work and, you know, keep a loose grip on all the other stuff? Because it can it can be beneficial, but it's not the thing itself. So I'm thinking about this idea that what happens after you get the thing you always dreamed of? What happens after you get the person, the award, the the thing that you always dreamed that you'd get? What do you do then? And I think that I guess you maybe adjust your dreams and you realize that all along, you thought that was a dream, but that was actually not. The dream was the work itself, the gift of a beautifully written sentence, the gift of a well-painted sunrise, the gift of conversation between two kindred souls, that the journey through the creative work is the gift. It is the dream. That dance actually is the whole thing. And we distract ourselves. We think that the reward for the art done is the fellowship or the or the publication and and it is it, it is in a capitalistic world those things are helpful right because you can use them to buy food but that actually the dream is to be able to do the work and how blessed you are and how blessed we are that you get to keep doing that 
Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. And I know you've had multiple long distance hiker trekker people on your show. And that's actually one of my callings as well. I love a good through hike, like a good 20 plus mile through hike through just, you know, insanely rugged terrain gaining. I mean, the one I did last summer, we gained 2000 feet of elevation in a mile um, over the course of a 19 and a quarter mile um, through hike one in one day uh, in the enchantments in Washington. And um, you can't undertake a journey like that thinking about, oh, it's going to be so great when I get to the end. It's like, honey, you're going to be doing this for the next 12 hours or something. <laughs> if you're <laughs> focused on the beer in the parking lot, that's not going to make for an enjoyable day. It's really is about, you know, one step in front of the other and then this lake and then this vista and look at that tree and look at these birds and look at the sun break and what's nice about the rain happening. And I think before I won the award, because I was so fixated on it, I would have said, Somebody who tells me, oh, it's just about the process and it's just about the writing, you know, that's a thing. That's a thing that out of touch people say or that losers say or, you know, but it's like, no, like even on the other side of winning, it really is the one foot in front of the other. And that's life too, right? I mean, it's the whole adage about you can't take it with you. Um, So the, you know, the accumulation and when do I get to the point in my life where I'm there? It's like, well, you don't until you die and then and then it's done so it it better be everything along the way instead well i'm glad i'm glad to know that this book made it out there for for us to to be able to hold in our hands and for you so let's talk a little bit about borderline fortune as um i've read it described as among other things uh an exploration of inheritance and i think for most of us when we think about the word inheritance we picture bags of money or fancy furniture or that I don't know that that art in your great grandmother's study. I, it, it, in your work, though, I feel like inheritance means something slightly different—the inheritance of that which we cannot see, um, what the generations who came before us have passed down to us in our behavior, in our genes, uh, even in our planet, our surroundings. I might inherit my father's convivial nature, um, but I could also inherit trauma, family trauma that went long unresolved and found its way into me. Is that a fair assessment of of inheritance? Or maybe can you tell us what you mean by this word? Yeah, it's complicated, right? Um, Certainly physical objects are part of it, but not in the sense of, you know, inheriting money. Like you said, Um, there is a lot in the book around objects being infused with greater meaning than the object itself. Um, I come from a family that tells stories through things. (laughs) Um, And I started extrapolating that idea of memory and objects into the landscape. So that's a piece of it. The landscape that I have inherited in my life is something that has been changed, not always for the better, by the people who came before me. And then you're right about the trauma piece um, and the intangible piece of inheritance. Uh, I think a lot about how, you know, the kind of existential dread that might grab hold of me at 2 a.m. comes from people I never met. You know, I know that part of it comes from my grandmother, who I knew as a child and who had, you know, extremely debilitating, not sufficiently treated anxiety, which came from experiences that she had when she was a child. Um, 
And I also wonder, though, how much of the way that she acted came from her parents, who were long gone by the time I came on the scene. Um, and this isn't just sort of like ethereal um, speculation on my part. There's a lot of, in you know the field of psychology at this point, particularly around attachment theory and what happens in the first couple of years and whether there's a secure attachment with your primary caregiver, how that ripples out. And so there have been ideas that things like anxiety, oh, you just inherited, it's just genetic. And it seems like the data is pointing more to, it's not that you inherit it through your genes so much as you are taught it in you know, those early days. And um, I'm not a fatalist around that. I think when you reach adulthood, if you're lucky enough to look around and say, wait a minute, is this what I want? Is this who I am? Or is this who I've been taught to be? Then there's the opportunity um, to rewrite that script a little bit. Um, but in this book, I was really looking at how um, the generations that came before me, particularly my grandparents and my great grandparents, kind of set the stage for what happened in my childhood and also what happened um, within myself, within my family, and then kind of within the, the larger ecology. And I've been telling people that it's concerned with the illusion of separation, because I think at the end of the day, it's this illusion that we are separated from each other or that there are, you know, parts within our psyche that we won't let know about each other as kind of a defense mechanism that leads to just a tremendous amount of pain. Like we wouldn't personal, we wouldn't intentionally harm ourselves if we realized that so much of that separation was an illusion and that in harming others and in harming our environment, we're actually directly harming ourselves. Wow, I'm fascinated by this. So I've talked on the show before about my grandfather, my, um, my mom's dad uh, died of suicide when I was 12. Um, I didn't know him that well. I'm so sorry. I didn't. Thank you. I didn't know him that well. Uh, for most of my life, he worked nights. He cleaned city buses in Akron, Ohio. And so he slept during part of the day. And then we just didn't see him. I have memories isolated of him. He sprinkled salt on um, on watermelon. <laughs> he called it agua malone. For a long time in my family, we didn't speak of his death because this is someone who suffered from depression his entire life. He was in and out of treatment, but never really able to learn to coexist with what that meant. Part of that was the times that he was alive in. But as a consequence, we, the family, never learned to coexist with his suicide, except that it was a secret and it was this shameful thing, right? That that it was part of our legacy. But I grew up knowing that we should never talk about it. And it was also somehow our fault. And I was thinking, I've never thought about that as an inheritance before, but the emotional work that I need to wrestle with, if I'm going to avoid passing that along to my own children who never knew that man at all, who never experienced that trauma, but that if I don't learn to talk about mental health, if I don't learn to be vulnerable uh, in the face of of pain or depression, that that I um, that that's an inheritance that I can my my children will take on. I reading your book made me think about those family stories. You said your your family tells stories with things. What did that mean? Yeah, so it's it's a multifaceted story again. Um, my father adored his mother. They had a great relationship. She was a really lovely woman. I only have snippets of memory of her. She died of pancreatic cancer when I was four. So she died. 
Yeah, it was it was hard for me, but mostly because it was hard for my father. And um, he didn't have a great relationship with his father. And so, you know, she she was the one she was the figure and he just adored her. And when she died, it sent him on this whole genealogical journey. Um, so by the time that he died, he had accumulated 30,000 names of my ancestors or other relations. And to put wow. that in context, this is before, I mean, Ancestry.com existed, but it was essentially just this like very lo-fi database. Like there was no DNA genealogy at the time. And it wasn't like now where you sign up for Ancestry.com and you just sort of click on other people's research and build out your family tree in an afternoon if you feel like it. This was like he was flying to the genealogical library in Salt Lake City. He was wandering around graveyards and trying to, you know, following hunches and taking grave rubbings. And he became this hub of knowledge, particularly about his mother's mother's line. That became his specialty. So there were people all over the world sending us things and these self-published books and filling in the gaps. And he was looking through handwritten census records and... um. So he was really the archivist. And then as part of that, he would have these objects that had belonged to some of the people that he had researched. So for instance, downstairs now, I have my father's 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 surveying transit from when he was working um, in Washington state. And they weren't just interesting things to have. They almost became stand-ins for the people themselves. And I think sometimes, I think my difficulty with getting rid of things comes from some of these objects are almost like stand-ins for the lack of connection <laughs> that actually happened between people because it is complicated. And like you're saying, if you have these secrets you know, and in my family, there were a lot of um, unspeakables around mental health and also around addiction, then the object becomes the stand in for the relationship that maybe could have been, but wasn't. Uh, so a lot of that ends up um, in my book, uh, which is partly why it felt kind of dangerous as I was writing it, even though now that it's an object and it's out in the world living its own life and I see how people are responding to it, I realize it's maybe not as obvious <laughs> to everyone as it is to me um, what I've put in there. But uh, those were certainly some of the questions that I was grappling with around inheritance and around this idea of conjuring, like the opening poem begins, I came here to conjure you. And when I wrote that line, I thought I was the conjurer. And then as I started you know, mucking through all this family history, I thought, well, this grandmother who I mentioned with the, you know, debilitating anxiety, she was extremely religious, but also would read tea leaves and put curses on people. And so I thought, well, maybe she's the conjurer. And then when I started thinking about my father and his genealogical research and that that came from his mother's death, I realized he was conjuring. He was trying to conjure her and bring her back, which is impossible. Um, and then having lost my father to vehicular homicide uh, when I was 23, you know, there's this loop around the conjuring and around my obsession with the past. That's something that I've inherited from him. It's a way that I observed as a small child that that's how you deal with grief or that's how you show love or that's 
that's how you honor someone's memory. And to a point, I think it's right until it becomes a trap and you're not in the present moment anymore. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. some beautiful, beautiful things that you said there. I know it's a painful subject, but would you be willing to tell us a little bit about your dad? Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's been it's been quite a while now, so I I am comfortable talking about him. Um, Yeah, he was also a long distance cyclist. So he and I had done the Seattle to Portland um, bicycle ride, um, organized 200 mile ride twice when I was a little kid and he'd done it before. And after, and um, when I was in college, he had kind of gotten away from riding as much, and I could tell he wasn't happy and he wasn't in as good a shape as he'd want to be. So I said, you know, we should do it again. We should we should do the STP again. And he started training, and then it kind of became clear that I wasn't going to be able to do it. But he was really stoked about how he was getting in better shape and getting back into cycling. Um, so he found a different friend who he was going to do the ride with, and on St. Patrick's Day in 2006, um, my last semester of grad school, they went out on their first, you know, official STP training ride, and they were on the bike path down by the Duwamish River uh, in Seattle, um, right at the southern edge of Seattle. And there was a 17-year-old coming the other way, street racing up from kind of the Tukwila South Center area. And I guess it was really important to get ahead in the street race because there was a semi ahead of him. I think the speed limit along there is, at this point, it's maybe 35. Maybe then it was 40. He copped to going 80. He was probably going faster than that. And to get around um, this semi truck, he just intentionally drove up on the bike path. And uh, my dad and his friend had been riding two abreast. And so the friend near the wall was okay, but there wasn't enough time for my dad to get behind them so they could be parallel along this little wall. Um, so the car just, you know, clipped my dad and, and uh, you know, they made heroic efforts at the uh, Harborview Medical Center, but he was already gone. Um, so that, I'm so that was sorry. the, yeah, it was um, definitely, you know, many of us have before and after moments in our lives. And that will probably always be, you know, the biggest, the biggest before and after. And I know um, the genesis of this podcast, right, was that you lost your father. And so there are ways to create and make meaning out of those experiences. How in the world did you write after that? How did you pick up a pencil or, I mean, was everything you wrote just, just grief on a page? Yeah, it's it's heavy. Um, I think everything I still write <laughs> is probably grief on a page, to be honest. Um, what I've had to learn over the years is that grief is healthy and it's natural and it's human. Um, trauma 
is the part that we need to work through. And that was part of this book. And that's part of what it's concerned with. And that's part of the journey that led me to be able to write this latest book um, was figuring out the difference that grief has movement. It's not linear. It doesn't like take you to the great place at the end, but it it moves you forward and allows you to grow. Whereas trauma is like this little time capsule where you just sort of do the same thought loop, the same pain over and over again. And I say it's like a time capsule because, you know, if I were still rooted in trauma and you asked me about my father, I could have just had a huge melty <laughs> right now, even sure, though it's been sure. more than a decade. I And early on, you know, in those first couple of years, you're asking, how did I pick up a pencil? I mean, any movie that involved a father dying, even if it was under totally different circumstances, anybody mentioning speeding or, you know, making just sort of insensitive quips about hitting pedestrians, you know, and they didn't really like just completely would shut me down. So figuring out how to open that capsule and let it become integrated, that's that's kind of the work. Well, I can see how doing that particular work you would have to feel like I need to step away. I can't do that. Like you, you would be mired. You would be stuck in that. But I, I'm, I'm fixed on this. I came here to conjure you, line from the beginning of your book, and thinking about the that intertextual and just layered. I, I did feel the eyes and the U's were slippery. Sometimes the eyes and the U's seemed like you, even though I hadn't met you, and sometimes they seemed like me, even though you hadn't met me. And other times, you was someone I wasn't sure of. And I love the notion that part of your father and your relationship to him could have found its way through this text, but also part of his relationship to those 30,000 other people in your family, that that was something he was he was um, bent on. Would you mind reading? I, there are a number of poems, I think, um, that would make sense, but I, I bet you could pick out one that makes um is a good fit for maybe what we're talking about today. The book kind of works in this arc of opening up grief through trauma. Um, so it starts, the book starts with Of the Dead. Um, and then the next section is Our Own Worst Consequence. So we go from, you know, what have the dead given us to what traps do we perpetuate on our own um, the third section is disenthrall, so the spell hopefully begins to break. And then the fourth section is called lay down your rigid creation. Um, so it takes slight, a slightly more expansive and, and cosmic turn toward the end. Um, they're so short, so maybe I'll just read one swerving into the other, the a disenthrall swerving into the um, lay down your rigid creation, just to kind of give a taste of what that looks like in practice. Rushing circulation shakes you. You had a father and will never have him again. Forgetting the northern constellations, equations you faltered through but did not comprehend. Plain vanilla ice cream, worn in flannel, white crowned sparrow. One day, history runs out the schematic alone, more than everything you ever toted. The thought of your acacia grazing unfamiliar atmosphere. What dark energy you bring to expand the universe is not yours to inventory. No more testimony. 
Thank you. Is it hard to read poetry? I know that you write poetry, and I know that it's hard to write poetry, but is it hard to read poetry out loud? Is that something that you had to learn, or have you always known how to read your poems? That's a good question. I think um, it's always a practice, right? And there are always things I could do better. And I talk to different artists and musicians who have given me a lot of wisdom around this. Is like, you're just there to share something and have an interaction and, you know, show love and, you know, kind of know your ministry. I'm not a religious person, but know your ministry in the sense of just like, who are you trying to reach um, and why? And focus on that instead of all the things that could be perfect. And when I was younger, I did write more kind of um, performance poetry, spoken word poetry, things that were meant to be read out loud rather than met on the page. Um, so there's that piece of it as well. But yeah, I thought you were going to ask about, is it hard to read poetry just in general? Because I know people are <laughs> often intimidated by it, but there's that piece too. So, Well, I mean, I will... I. I think I've actually, I think I heard you say something about this where people lay at your feet all the the years of high school and middle school poetry like that. And I'm a high school English teacher is my day job. So I'm criticizing myself. But like, so that the two complaints that people always have about poetry are actually kind of polar opposites that like, yeah, I don't know what it means. What's the secret handshake that unlocks it? Right. So that's on one side. And then the other side is like, it means whatever you want it to mean. How can both of those things be true at the same time? And are they true? Well, they might be true in the in the you know, the students who sit in the seats in my classroom, right? I I've I've seen both of those, right? Um, but if I've heard you correctly, the notion is probably that there's truth somewhere in between those two those two poles. Yeah, I think it's a it's a collaborative effort. Most poems have some kind of intent behind them. Some are totally conceptual abstract poetry. I always take comfort in the white space around the words because I feel like that's room for me and that's room for me to interact that that white space is there for a reason that there's room for my story, that when you say that you've you've had a father and you'll never have him again, I never knew your father, and I'm heartbroken for you, but I'm also thinking about me, and then our fathers are both there in the white space of that page, and then you're talking about legacy and inheritance and having a dad who looked for ancestors. Well, my dad's dad did that exact same thing, and then and turned out to to have a number of he was the a kind of a motherless child right a mom who died when he was young and he was the son of someone who was orphaned and and this legacy of people in search of family and that the one thing my dad did really really well was was try to create family because he came from a long line of folks who for whom that was a quest and sometimes an unfulfilled one. And all that, for me, comes alive in the white space of your page. And and I I will confess that I don't know every line that you read and how it fits into your story. It seems to be there are multiple ones. That's not a strict narrative. It's it's like you talked about these essence objects, right? That they're going to float in and out and, and I won't know the story, but I'm going to I'm going to join you um, in your words. And that that's there's a lot of power there <laughs> and a lot of responsibility. So I also understand why for some students that's really scary. I don't want to find myself on the page. I don't want to 
work that hard or I'm afraid of what I might find. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I think we're also kind of indoctrinated often to think that there's there's one right way to interact with the world. There's one right way to live. There's a right answer. You need to be the winner by getting the right answer. And most of life is not like that standardized test, you know, that keeps coming back year after year. I was a public school teacher for uh, several years as well. So, you know, I know, I know kind of like the, the framework versus the, you know, the spark that you try to maintain within, within those confines of, of educating. And um, yeah, it's, it's like a, a little taste that you can have whenever you want of that more ambiguous, more expansive life. So well, it's glorious, and I'm really grateful that you wrote this, and I'm really grateful that you shared it. I feel like we've just skimmed the surface. I would go through all these poems. Maybe I'll rattle your cage, and we'll just we'll have a tutorial, or I'll come to. Of course, you're in Portland now. We'll go to we'll go to West Seattle and look for the harpy harpist, and and do some more poems. But in the meantime, I have to wrap it. So we always close with a few icebreakers. If you've listened to the show, you could you might know them. I'll have to do them out of order. Um, <laughs> Multiple choice here, um, dogs or cats? I've loved a couple dogs, but definitely team cat. Coffee or tea? Very much tea. I wish coffee liked me, but it doesn't. <laughs> I wish coffee liked me. Oh, mountains or beach? The nice thing about the Pacific Northwest is you get both, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to straddle that line. Yeah, you get those torn paper mountains that, that run right up to the, the coastline. I've never seen anything like that before I moved there. Um, are you an early bird or a night owl? Uh, between the two, probably early bird, but like medium bird. I don't start <laughs> with anything that starts with a six. I'm not going to be up for that. So, <laughs> A medium bird. I like that. Uh, loud or quiet? Quiet, for sure. Um, are you a risk taker or the person who knows where the band-aids are? That goes back to that inheritance question. I think my constitution, had I grown up differently, would probably be risk taker. Um, but I definitely know where the band-aids are. So part of my my adult journey is how to know where the band-aids are and, you know, maybe bust out of a few of the boxes I was trained to stay in. That's excellent. I, I This question, I, I don't really think about my own answers to these questions. No one's ever asked me, but last night I literally could not find the band-aids. I tripped on the steps and, and cut my hand. Oh, I'm like, shoot. where are the band-aids? <laughs> I, I ask people this all the time, but I should know where they are. Um, <laughs> if you could time travel, would you rather go back in time or forward in time? I guess it depends on if I can change anything or I just have to witness it, you know, because I'm, I'm very past oriented, but I don't know that it would do me any good to just go back and watch, you know, painful things happen again. If I could, if I could change the past, then maybe it would be nice to go back and, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm just making an argument for the, the present moment because <laughs> they both seem very fraught. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Um, what's something quirky that folks don't know about you? This likes, loves, pet peeves. I'm a lifetime member of the Girl Scouts. Uh, really? still go back and um, do service projects at my Girl Scout camp twice a year. Um, so I've been a Girl Scout since I was seven, and I still have the the, the lifetime me uh, membership card now. And um, that's been very instrumental in my life. And then the other one is probably I had visited 49 states by the time I was 20, but I still haven't been to North Dakota. 
Me neither. Oh, really? We, we need to go. Yes. I, 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 <laughs> me neither. North Dakota, where are you? We need to come there. There should be like a thing that everybody goes to do in North Dakota to check it off of our bucket list. Are you at 49 states or are you? I'm at, I'm, I'm at 48 because I've not been to Alaska. Oh. I wanted to drive to Alaska when I lived in Seattle so I could check it off of my list until I looked at how far away. That's it. a long drive. That's a really <laughs> it's, long drive. It seems like it should be right there. Yeah. <laughs> no, just do, do a little hop over to Juneau. You're better off than driving. Indeed, indeed. Uh, how many, if you're a lifetime member of the Girl Scouts, how many badges do you have? Well, you don't get to earn badges anymore once you once you graduate from high school, but I did get my silver award, and then I got the um, Girl Scout Award of Excellence when I was a senior in high school um, because I had been for a couple years um, volunteering with a Girl Scout troop at a school for kids who are in transition due to homelessness. Um, so they had two adults who were kind of running the troop, but they weren't Girl Scouts, so they didn't know how to teach them any of the Girl Scout stuff. So I had been coming in and kind of being the the resident Girl Scout consultant and hanging out with these girls. Um, so as a result of that, even though I didn't actually do my gold award, I got the college scholarship um, from the Girl Scouts. So uh, it's, wow. yeah, it's a, it's a super cool organization um, and totally separate from the Boy Scouts, which has had some, some trouble lately. But the, the Girl Scouts has been, um, yeah, hugely instrumental in my life. That's great. What do you love about where you live? Well, I'm less than a mile from the Willamette River, and I'm walking distance to the light rail that'll take me into Portland. And it's, you know, got all the things that a city has, but it also still kind of feels like a small town. And if I open my back gate, I'm on a bike path. So I just feel like I live in kind of this like idyllic little, you know, greater Portland um green, watery, lovely space, as long as we're not having the, the wildfires or the ice storm or the heat dome <laughs> that we had in the last couple of years. Except for those things. Right. But no, that sounds like a, a veritable paradise. What's um a favorite book or movie or both? Oh, favorites are so hard. Um, I mean, a sure. Favorite, yeah, I gave favorite. some shout outs in Borderline Fortune, some of the epigraphs. Um, one came from Lucille Clifton's The Book of Light, and another came from Rebecca Solnit's The Far Away Nearby. Um, and then one came from Lucy Brockfroydo's The Master Letters. And those are three books that I have read over and over and over again. So those definitely rate. Yes. I would sometimes be afraid to put Rebecca Solnit or Lucille Clifton it anywhere near my own words because <laughs> they're so shiny like i but but uh it was seamless oh, thank that you. you were in you were in good company with um with that triumvirate um what's your favorite ice cream when we lived in oakland there was a place called fenton's and they had a coffee cookie dream hot fudge sundae and i still periodically think about that and we haven't lived there in 7 years <laughs> so it was pretty amazing coffee cookie Dream. I've never had this, but I'm going to go to my local ice cream place with this, which is Mitchell's. I'm just, just going to order one up. I don't see it on the menu. I'm going to like slap the bar. I'm like, one coffee cookie dream Sunday. It was all please, the good sir. things. And the sir will be about 14. But... Yeah, coffee ice cream with Oreos and then cookie dough and then hot fudge on top. It was amazing. All right. I so. will report back. That's excellent. <laughs> okay, last one. If we were to take a picture of you really happy and doing something you love, what would we see you doing? 
Probably one of those ridiculous burly one day hikes somewhere in the 20 to 25 mile range. Um, planning to do another one in September. So yeah, that's that's kind of my jam, even though I end up with a little bit of the, the swollen knee <laughs> situation afterwards, but totally worthwhile. Thank you, Teresa, for coming on the show today and for reminding us that, um, as you said, if the sun returns, it will strike right here. Uh, thank you for asking us to think about our inheritance, what we've been given, what we leave behind. And I'm thinking about your great, great aunt who inspired and filled people with wonder. Thank you for inspiring us and for filling us with wonder. Uh, we're grateful. Oh, thank you so much, Anne-Marie. You've been a really generous reader and conversation partner, and it's just been an honor to be here. So very grateful. Thank you. Thank you, folks. Our guest today has been Teresa K. Miller, whose book Borderline Fortune is a recent National Poetry Series winner, which you guys is a big deal. Like, it's a big deal. So please pick it up at the library or an indie store near you. Find yourself and your story um, on the white pages in between the words and um, think about your legacy because I've been thinking about mine. To everyone who's listening, uh, we're wishing you love and light wherever the day takes you. Be good to yourself. Be good to one another, and we'll see you again soon on this wild and precious journey. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloya, producer Sarah Wilgrove, and audio engineer Ian Douglas. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.